Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Well, it's good to see you today. I am uh, I'm excited to be back with you this morning. I, I've missed you guys. Um, today we are starting a brand new series, which is so exciting for me. We are going to be talking about this guy, uh, the guy who comes down the, the mountain with a big mystical stick and his hair on fire, carrying the big stones, you know, have God's laws written on him. And uh, this is going to be good. We're going to be talking about this all summer long. It's a story about law and about power, and, but it's also a story about love and humility and grace and faith and deliverance. It's a story about a single human being that has been chosen by God to redeem his people out of bondage and into freedom. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? There's a word in Hebrew for a chosen one who has come to rescue God's people. Does anybody know what that word is? Messiah. And so who is the chosen one in this story that we're going to be seeing? Moses. But it, this story we, we find out is really more than just about Moses. It's got what God delivers to Israel is more than just the law. And what we're going to find in this story are fascinating echoes of a greater story to come, and that is the story of Jesus. Uh, it's really, really cool as we go through this how much we find Jesus saturating the story of the Exodus. You know, last year, if you remember, if you were here, we had a series called Jesus BC. We were looking at these shadows and signs of Jesus in the Old Testament. Really, this is, in a sense, a continuation of that series. But we're focusing in on this story of the Exodus. And, and really, this is what Jesus himself taught us. He taught his disciples this. But Jesus says that we would go back into the Old Testament and that we would see echoes of the great Messiah story, his Messiah story, on every page of this story of Moses, this first Messiah, who's a, an imperfect Messiah. He's a flawed Messiah. He's a broken Messiah, but he's a shadow of the Messiah to come. And Jesus said, this is how we are to read our Bibles. When he was walking down that road to Emmaus with his disciples, he told them, he's like, these, the stories, those stories, guys, they're about me. And we're going to see these beautiful parallels between Moses and Jesus as we go along. You remember in the early church, in that very first century, they didn't have a New Testament right? They didn't have the books that we have of the New Testament. So when they studied the scriptures, what were they studying? They were studying the Hebrew scriptures. And what were they doing? They were looking for Jesus in those scriptures. That is what they did. And so it's what we get to do. And uh, so as Christians, we're going to be studying Jesus as much as we're studying Moses through this series. I'm really looking forward to it. And it's so fascinating. It really is. Let's look at, I just want to look at a few of these parallels right off the bat. Uh, these are a few that came to mind this week to me. You're going to think of others probably as we go along. But this guy, Moses, here was a man whose coming had been foretold. He was born into poverty as a Hebrew. He was hunted as an infant. Here's a man who left his life of power and prosperity to humble himself and to identify with the poor and the powerless. This is the descent of Moses, right? Here's a man who was anointed by God to lead people to the promised land. Here's somebody whose path to freedom leads through blood and water. Let me describe what I mean by that. You know, at the, at the Passover supper, that last supper that Jesus had, where he says the Passover 
the blood of the Lamb. It's that that leads to their freedom. That's the foundation of, uh, for understanding what he was going to accomplish on the cross. He tried to explain that to the disciples. He's saying it's the clue to understanding everything and uh, the Passover that we see in the Exodus story. And then baptism, we see that Jesus go through this water baptism. It's, uh, he's seen as going into the water and coming out the other side as fully the people of God, the people freed from slavery into a new kind of living, a new kind of covenant. And that is what we see. The imagery of Exodus is embedded in our Christian faith. It's really, really cool. Uh, who introduces his followers, those who will believe, to a brand new covenant with God. Moses does this. He comes down the mountain. He tells them, there's a brand new covenant. It's a new way of living. Jesus introduces to us a brand new covenant. Uh, who proclaimed this new covenant on a mountain. That's kind of cool. I, I don't think it's any accident that Jesus, uh, when he chose to preach his first sermon about the way we're to live and what that kingdom is going to look like, he does it on a mountain, right? We have the Sermon on the Mount. It was a smaller mountain. It was kind of like Mont Bellevue. It wasn't like a, the, the big mountain of, uh, of Moses, but it was a mountain. And he, he, that's where he unfolds the ethics of, of this new covenant. The, the biography of both of these men spans four books. We're going to mainly be in Exodus, but every once in a while we'll jump over to Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy, which also shed some light about the story of Moses. And of course, Jesus' biography, we know him as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then number 10, we're told very little of their childhoods, uh, but their adult life, in their adult life, they're going to be used by God to change the world. And this is very true of ancient biographies. And when you go back and look at these things, they, would, they might tell about their birth, but then basically they kind of skip ahead to what's going on in their adulthood. And a lot of people might wonder, well, why don't the Gospels tell more about Jesus childhood. Why doesn't it tell about him as a little boy? We get one little story of him being at the temple, but really we don't get any, anything else. And it's very simple. That's how ancient biographies worked. And so in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have these four Greco-Roman style biographies. And uh, it's very typical of the day. It's also very typical of this ancient biography we're going to be looking at in the book of Exodus. Now, ultimately, where are we headed? Why did God choose this specific people? Why did he choose the Hebrews enslaved in Egypt to be his people. And we're, we're shown this in Exodus 19, God reveals what his goal is. He wants to free up Israel so that they will become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're going to become their own nation, but that nation is going to be this kingdom of priests. That's very unusual, a kingdom of priests, because a priest is an intermediary. A priest is someone who kind of stands in between God and the people. He represents God to the people. He represents the people to God. That's kind of the job of the priest. Even today in some Christian traditions, there's a priest. He stands in between. I'm going to represent God for you. And so God does something very unusual when he calls this nation. He says, when it comes to my people, I want an entire nation, a kingdom of priests. Ultimately, what does he want? He wants a people who are all being a priest to each other. We get to be priests to each other. We get to intercede on each other's behalf. But in addition to that, what he really wants is for Israel to intercede on behalf of the world, to represent God to the world, and for the whole world to, to understand the message of God through Israel. He wants Israel to be the light of the nations. In Genesis 12, verse 3, God promises Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So ultimately, God wants to bless the whole world. 
through him. And in order for that to happen, he has got to free the Hebrews out of Egypt who were, who were enslaved. So with that in mind, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn over to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to start right there in the beginning. Now, here's an interesting bit of trivia. The word Exodus is actually a Greek word, and it means exit. It means the exit, right? It's pretty easy. The way out. When we're all done today, we're going to have a great exodus outside the doors. And that's what exodus is all about. It's this journey of Israel out of bondage, out of slavery, into freedom, into new covenant. Now, that's a Greek word. Wait a minute. What is a Greek word named book doing in the Hebrew Old Testament? Why has it got a Greek name? Well, the reason for that is fascinating. At some point in history, uh, the entire Hebrew Old Testament, the Bible, was translated into Greek. We know of that translation. It's known as the Septuagint, and it's a Greek translation. And many scholars today even uh, believe that that Greek translation is, by and large, even a more accurate translation of the original words and passages uh, then the Hebrew translation that sort of got passed down for years and years and years because some of it, uh, different rabbis and things sort of added their own little stamp to different verses and things. It's a fascinating subject. We won't go on to, into it. But that Greek translation is what our, the early church would have been reading. Paul and Jesus, when they quote from the Old Testament, they're quoting from the Septuagint. They're quoting from that Greek translation. That's why sometimes if you go back and you, the word Jesus, he'll quote a verse. It might look a little different than the Isaiah, the way Isaiah said it. He's quoting from a Greek translation there. Fascinating thing. Now, in ancient Hebrew, there's also a name for this book, the book of Exodus. In Hebrew, it's known as Shemot, which means the names. It means the names. And it comes from the opening words that we read in, very, in verse 1 where it says, these are the names of the Israelites who came to Egypt with Jacob along with the households. The first verse, the names. And so this is known in Hebrew as the book of the names. And then it lists the 12 sons of Jacob. From a Hebrew perspective, the book of the names, the names it tells are very important in this book in a couple of ways. Number one, as, as we know, kind of reading those ancient scriptures, names meant a lot. The name you were named could often reveal something about who that person was, their identity, their character, even the circumstances, they were, the context they were born into, right? So someone might be named Yira because God provides, you know, they might give them that name. Or some, someone might name their poor kid Sadness because it was really hard giving birth to you. Uh, so they would name their kids all kinds of crazy things uh, that meant something. But what else is interesting about Exodus is the names that are recorded in this story, they give us an idea of how God cares about the underprivileged, how he cares about the destitute, the unnoticed, the outcasts, the people who normally in any other ancient biography would not be given a name. It would just be go, it would, they would just be person B in the credits, you know. Uh, in, in the book of Exodus, they're given names. And what's really fascinating is the one, the one's, who are named are often the, the slaves. The rich and powerful go nameless in this story. And it's very intentional. It's very cool. I, you've heard the expression, history is recorded by the winners, right? That's often very true. It's recorded by the people who are in power. And when Pharaoh back then is having, you know, his history chiseled out in hieroglyphics on those pyramids or, you know, wherever he is, it's all about the Pharaoh. It's all about his accomplishments, the armies he defeated, and that was very intentional. The average person doesn't give a mention, you know, he doesn't tell the name of his servant or something like that. It's all about Pharaoh. In the book of Exodus, Pharaoh goes nameless. 
The whole book, he's never, we're never told which Pharaoh it is. And that, that's unheard of. He just gets called the king of Egypt in some of your translations or the Pharaoh throughout the whole thing. It's very intentional. And all the people that you wouldn't normally notice who are being used by God, they get names. And so the ancient Jews calling this book, the book of names, uh, tells us something there. Okay, so we're going to start off chapter 1. Chapter 1 starts off with this list of names. And then in verse 6, it says this, Eventually, Joseph, his brothers, and everyone in his generation died, but the Israelites were fertile and became populous. They multiplied and grew dramatically, filling the whole land. Remember, uh, Exodus picks up exactly where Genesis leaves off. At the very end of Genesis, the context is uh, it's the story of Joseph, this, you know, the guy with the many-colored coat, and he, was a, you know, he went to prison, sold by his brothers, and then he became you know, a, the savior of Egypt, and uh, he was in power there. He was welcomed. He and his family were welcomed as guests in Egypt because he, he helped Egypt survive a famine uh, that had spread through the land, and Egypt prospered for years and years and years because of Joseph. His family grew there in Egypt. They, they grew and grew and grew in Egypt, and eventually developed into an entire ethnic group right there in the midst of Egypt, but they never like became Egyptian. They always maintained their identity, and they lived among the Egyptians, becoming like an entire nation within a nation. And so the, a new pharaoh, it tells us, comes along one day, and he's like, I don't like this. I don't like this one bit. These guys are too big. I'm scared of them. He begins to fear. And that's the message we get here. He has, it's this classic fear of the other. We don't know. We don't know where their loyalties lie. You know, these guys are not good patriotic Egyptians. We're not sure about these guys. And so, and so in verse eight, it says, now a new king came to power in Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, the Israelite people are now larger in number and stronger than we are. Come on, let's be smart and deal with them. Otherwise they will grow in number. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and then escape from the land. So here he plays his hand. He tells us what he's really afraid of. It's kind of unusual. He's afraid they will leave. He's afraid he will lose them as a valuable workforce. These Hebrews are a valuable workforce. They're part of the, part of the economy, right? And so he comes up with a plan. He actually comes up with a plan A, B, and C. And uh, here, here he goes. Plan A is going to be to work them to death. He decides to put them to work uh, building these two cities of Python and Ramses that he was building at the time, and they work. And his goal is that he's going to get a lot of work out of them. In the meantime, a lot of them will die. The ones that don't die, their spirit will be broken, and uh, it, it'll, just, it'll be good for Egypt, and uh, we won't have to worry about these pesky Hebrews. Problem is plan A doesn't work, right? We're, we're told in the next few verses that they work hard. But the more they work, they're vigorous. These are vigorous Hebrews, right? They continue to multiply. Man, those Hebrews. And so he moves on to plan B. Plan B in verse 15, he calls in two of the Hebrew midwives, the women who would act kind of like as doctors when people would give birth, and they would help. Um, now, if we were given this chapter a subtitle, I would call this girl power. This chapter is amazing because all of the heroes in Moses' early life are chicks, right? They are, they are wonder women. So what else is amazing is these first two heroic women that we find here, they are named. They are named, another unusual thing. In this culture, these two women would have been nobodies. But in God's history, everything's upside down. Everything's upside down. And their names are Shifra and Pua. Shifra, so remember those names. Those are heroic names, Shifra and Pua. If you're having a daughter, it's a, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe not. 
She might, she might have trouble in the playground, you know, uh, but it'll build character if she gets in a fight or two, okay? <laughs> Shifra and Pua, there you go. Uh, so these midwives, Shifra and Pua, now these are probably leaders over like all the midwives. They represent midwi- more midwives than just them. The Pharaoh calls them to him and he says, here's my mission for you. Whenever the women are about to give birth, you go to the delivery of the Hebrew babies, and if it's a boy, you kill him. Whatever you need to do, you know, be sneaky about it, whatever you got to do, uh, you can tell them it was a, you know, a miscarriage or something, but uh, stillborn, but you got to do what you got to do. Kill all of the baby boys as soon as they're being born. Now, do they obey? No, they don't. They, they let the boys live, and that word gets back to Pharaoh that, hey, there's all these like baby boys still floating around, and he calls them back in, and he says, what's going on with the baby boys still being born? And, and they say, well, Pharaoh, you know these Hebrews. They're so vigorous. That word keeps coming up, right? That's my new favorite word. Even, even as the women, they give birth, and uh, they just give birth quickly. And as soon as we hear that they're giving birth, we get there, but the baby's, you know, long born before we get there. There's nothing we can do then. You know, we can't just, like, kill the babies. We can't be sneaky about it. So there's nothing we can do. And the Pharaoh buys it. He's like, yeah, I know these Hebrews, right? They give birth fast. Okay. And then interesting, God blesses the midwives, that's interesting to me because it kind of creates an ethical issue here, doesn't it? There's, there's deception going on here in this story. There's disobedience to authority, and God blesses them. Because it's like he's telling these midwives, I'm blessing you. You've chosen the way of love over the way of law. Important lesson for us. And then just before chapter 2, Pharaoh moves on to plan C, Uh, which is brutal. And it's interesting because he gives this command notice to all Egyptians. This isn't just given to the Egyptian soldiers. All Egyptians. He tells them uh, they're all to participate in what amounts to systematic genocide, basically. He says to all of the population, if you notice a Hebrew baby boy, you as an Egyptian have the duty, the right, the responsibility as an edict from Pharaoh to take that boy from his mother and fling him into the Nile. It's given to all Egyptians. It's an absolute attempt at extermination at this point. Isn't it amazing, by the way, that God's people always flourish under persecution? We flourish under persecution. And uh, it's within this context right here that we kind of, we get to the end of chapter one, we get to chapter two, and in chapter two, we kind of zoom in. It's, it's less of a big picture. Now we're zooming into a more personal story to the origin story of Moses. In chapter two, it starts off this way. Now, a man from Levi's household married a Levite woman. And just a, a few chapters later in four, I believe, they, these, this man and woman are, are named Amram and Jochebed. The man's name is Amram. The woman is Jochebed. And these guys have a baby boy. And for three months, they're able to hide him. They hide him out. For three months, they pull it off. They're keeping him out of sight. But eventually, Jochebed realizes, I, can't, I, I just can't do this anymore. Uh, at some point, somebody's going to see. They're going to find out my baby boy's going to die. And so she says in verse 3, I got to at least give him a, a lease on life. I got to give him a chance. And, uh, and so she tells Miriam, who's Moses' older sister, she's also named a little bit later. She says, take your baby boy to the riverside, put him in a basket. Now, here's something interesting. The word for basket is the word ark. It's the word ark. In fact, this is the only place 
where the same word that's used of Noah's ark is used again, the word ark. So just as that first ark saved people from the water, the ark saves Moses down the waters of the Nile. And the imagery here is rich. It's rich stuff. She puts him in the ark, sends him down the aisle, and Miriam, the sister, watches him, and it floats down to where Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe. Now, this wouldn't just be a normal, like a bath for hygiene purposes. They they had uh, cleaner ways to bathe for that. Uh, This would actually be a ritualistic religious bathing in the Nile that the, the, especially the uh, the royalty would do. It held, the Nile River held sacred significance to the Egyptians. And uh, the Nile was worshipped as a god. And uh, so having a ritualistic bathing is something the royalty would do. And so the Ark of Moses floats towards her. And so you have to understand from her perspective, she's here paying homage to the Nile, the god of the Nile. And here, the Nile is being faithful to her. The, in, in her mind, faith has given birth to a baby here. And uh, we don't know why she doesn't have other children, uh, but what we do know about her is that she is somebody who sees this and interprets this as, as a gift from the gods, and, and that, you know, the Nile has carried this baby for her, and so she takes the baby and adopts him as her own. I just think it's fascinating. This princess thinks this is a miraculous event, and she's absolutely right. <laughs> She's absolutely right, right? She, she, she might be giving credit to the wrong God, but she's aware that something absolutely miraculous is happening in this baby's presence. The plot twists in the story are amazing. I mean, Moses now is not only saved, he is saved and brought into the royal family. And Miriam, his sister, sees this. She goes up, she goes up to the princess and says, oh, I see you, uh, you have a new baby. The Nile has blessed you with a baby. Nice, <laughs> nice going. Congratulations. Do you need a wet nurse? I might could get you one. And that would have been common for the royal family to use. They would have somebody who would nurse the baby for them. Uh, and the princess says, yes, please do. Find somebody. And who does Miriam get? Jochebed, Moses' mother. Moses' own mother gets to be the wet nurse for her own child. For the first three years... Moses' mother gets this priceless time with her son. It says that, it even says that the Pharaoh's court paid her for it. He hired her to take care of this baby, not knowing that he was, the, she was the real mom. So she got money for taking care of her own kid. How many of you would like to get paid for taking care of your own child? That's, that's not a bad deal. Yeah. So she's very blessed in this. Up until at least at least until the three years are up. And then I can imagine that that is going to be uh, pretty brutal. It's going to be tough because then she's no longer needed as a hireling for the state. She has to see her son uh, fully raised by the Egyptians. And at that point, my heart goes out to Jochebed. I I can imagine nursing Moses for three years, and then finally she has to turn him over to the state, not just to be raised, you know, by, by different parents, but... That'd be hard enough, but people who will teach him a different religion, people who will teach him a different ethic, a different way of life, a different way to understand life, he's going to become something that she would never really want him to become. It's likely he's going to be taught to hate Jews. And so my heart goes out to Jochebed, and and my heart goes out to all the Jochebeds among us. 
As I've talked to many of you, and I understand, I know the pain. For some of us, it's, it's little ways. It's ways like, oh, my kid's, my kid's going to college, and oh, God, take care of them, because I don't get to do that anymore. And some of us have experienced that moment when you're, you're, you're the ch- it's first day of kindergarten, and you take 74 pictures, and oh, baby, my baby, she's... But some of us, it's very serious. And for some of us, you've gone through divorce and you've gone through separation, custody issues. And your kids may be coming and going and into your home and then out of your home. And maybe there are times when they're being raised and they're being taught or influences in their life that are anything but what you would most want for them. And I could understand that that pain cuts deep. And the story of Moses that we read here, it gives us comfort because it reminds us of something, that God can take care of our kids even when we can't. God can take care of our kids even when we can't, right? And we have a God who knows the heartache of handing over your child. He understands that Moses is going to be raised by pagans, basically, and yet God is so faithful. He's going to find a way to, to find a way to bring Moses home and help him to walk in what his destiny always was. God finds a way. So never stop praying for those children. Amen? Amen. What other lessons can we take from this part of the story? I'm sure there's things that might stand out to you. Here's just a few more things that stand out to me. Number two, God will use ordinary people to do heroic things. He uses ordinary people to do heroic things. In in Exodus, the book of names, it's the weak who are named. It's not the strong. And, And all the heroes of this book are inconspicuous people that you'd never normally notice. They don't have any titles. And, you know, I don't know what it is in your life that makes you feel maybe disqualified from being used by God or from leadership or from heroism or making a difference in the world. Whether it's you don't, maybe it's not enough education or not enough money or you weren't born with gifts and talents that maybe some, someone else has. Maybe you feel like you weren't born with the right personality or you weren't born with the connections that someone else has. I would guess this. Probably the things that you feel disqualified about are exactly the things that draw God's attention to your life. Those are the things that allow him to say, that's what I want to work with. Because God likes to get the praise. He likes the glory. And otherwise, we would get all the glory, right? Amen. Amen. I'm going to move along really fast here. Number three, love will lead us to make the best moral decisions. Love will lead us to make the best moral decisions. We don't really have time to go all into this one. We'll talk about this in home life this week. Uh, But number four, we do all of this in community. We do this in community. See, love looks like God, and God looks like Jesus. Love looks like, we're told that in the New Testament, that God is love. And then we're told, we're told in Hebrews 1 that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So love looks like God and God looks like Jesus. And we're to walk in that love. We're to walk in love, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And we do this in community. This is what he told us to do. This is what he told us to do. Scripture reminds us of this. We often forget this. You remember back in Exodus 19, we just read it, that God called Israel to be a kingdom of priests. 2,000 years later, the apostle Peter intentionally echoes those same words to us. And he's telling that the church, now he's not talking to Israel, he's talking to the church, calling us to be a royal priesthood. We're not called to be isolated individuals, all following God 
in our own way. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to be a holy nation, a tribe of priests following Jesus in relationship with each other. So what it, here's what it looks like. It means, it means we bring our decisions to each other. We bring our hurts to each other. And we say, what does look, love look like in my life? Because I'm not just designed to do this on my own. I am not. If I'm doing that, I'm doing it the hard way. If I'm following Jesus on my own, I am doing it the hard way in a way that is bizarre and misshaped. I am designed to say to my fellow brother and sister, be a priest to me right now. Be a priest in my life. And so we open up our lives to one another. We do this together. It's the only way to live. It's the only way to live. Otherwise, the alternative is that we live isolated and we default to rules, we default to rituals. That's how we feel satisfied and close to the Lord. I can understand, by the way, how, why religious leaders uh, always want to make more rules. I understand the tendency because it makes things very easy. Rules think, make things easy. It makes things very clean, very clear. Here are the rules. Just do them or you're in trouble or you're out. Do the rules. But the way of love calls us together. And it calls us to be open with one another. It calls us to be priests in each other's life. And I think that's the only way to live. That's the only way to, to follow Jesus. In that spirit, I want to just remind you also that this week uh, we're starting up our summer semester of home life. And uh, we're excited about that. Home life is, begins this week. Yay! And uh, so our groups are going to be meeting out in the foyer, our representatives from all of our five groups. And so make sure you go by there. If you're already in a home life group, you can just go by and say, hey, I'll see you, see you this week. But uh, if you're not in a home life group, if you've never come to home life, or maybe you came, checked it out, and you haven't been back, go by and talk to the group leaders out there and, uh, and, and check it out. We have groups that meet all over town, Spring, Tombaugh, Woodlands, Spring, everywhere. And so there's one, they meet on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays. And so there's, a, there's most likely a group that's going to be just, just right for whatever schedule works out best for you. Um, but it's important to us. Home Life for us, these small groups are not just a sort of a secondary little ministry we have on the side here that we thought would be cool. Home Life is really representative of what we're all about. It's representative. It's, it's, it's our home group ministry. It's a community of people doing life together and discipling one another, ultimately so we can help each other become more like Jesus because nobody walks alone. We believe no one walks alone. We really, really believe that. And we believe that God is, is forming us into the, that reality to be a church where no one walks alone. And home life is right at the core of that. Um, our church is about relationships and here on Sunday morning, this is great. We're kind of, you know, we come and we worship together and we kind of look at the scriptures together. But real relationships, let me tell you what, real growth, growing in the Lord, growing in your faith, it happens in community, right? And community doesn't mean crowd. We mistake those two words. Right now, we're in a crowd. I wouldn't necessarily say we are in passionate community so much. That happens during the week. That happens during the week. It happens when we leave these doors. Community is where growth happens. Um, we want to be authentic disciples who make disciples. Um, that's the relationships that God's called us to. Home life is a place we get to have an impact on other people. 
we get to sacrifice, you know, for some of us, we have busy weeks. I'm, I'm sure most of us have a busy week. You get to sacrifice an hour or two of your week to go and bless somebody else just by your presence. Sometimes it's just being there. Sometimes you might be having a week where you're like, well, I don't know. I don't think I really need home life. Someone else needs you at home life. I guarantee it. Someone else needs you there. Just your presence, just your encouragement, your prayer, right? And so be, be at home life. It all comes down to relationships. That's why home life exists. We've got five groups. Uh, Zach and Pam Clift, they're awesome. They're over our Tomball group. They meet on Tuesday nights. Uh, John and Zoe White, they're over our spring group. They also meet on Tuesday nights. Paxton Cole, he's over our group in Imperial Oaks, and that's a Thursday night group. Paul and Ernie Bowman, uh, they uh, are over a group that's kind of multi-site, meets a lot of different places, and has a lot of, actually has different leaders in different places. Uh, they meet kind of all along the Sawdust Rayford corridor in the neighborhoods around here. Uh, Melissa and myself, leader group in the woodlands. So if you're in the woodlands, we'd love to see you. We are on Wednesday nights. Um, and so after the service, come and sign up today, okay? Praise the Lord. That's, that's all I have to preach at you about home life. Praise the Lord. Um, let's, let's pray, all right? And I'm gonna let you out of here. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, I pray today that you would give us a vision for the kind of community you want us to be. Give us the wisdom of your spirit, speaking through community to make those loving choices in our lives this week. Make us a wise and loving people, Father God. May our love be Christ-like. Help us to be the people becoming more like Jesus. Nobody among us walking alone, in Jesus' name. Lord, I also pray for those who are hurting because of where our kids are right now. I pray for the Jacobeds in our life, the Jacobeds among us. I pray that you bring a sense of hope and an eagerness for the future and to know that you can relate and that you are with us and that you are with them and that your spirit has not given up on the story of our children. Father, I also pray for those of us who may be feeling weak or disqualified because of something about who we are. I pray, Lord, that we would see how you see us. Give us a vision for your vision of who we are, who we're called to be, and how you delight in the very things that we would think are our burdens or our shortcomings. I pray that, you would, that we would catch this vision, a fresh vision of, of how you want to use us. Maybe, may we be inspired by this life of Moses this summer as we study this, Lord. Maybe we be in, may we be inspired in ways that draw us closer to your son, Jesus. And in his name I pray, amen. Amen, amen. Our prayer partners are coming forward right now. And if you're one of our guests today, we, uh, we want to invite you, uh, as I said, to join us out by the cafe. We would love a chance to get to meet you and, and just say hi to you and let you know all about our church. I encourage you as you leave today, make sure you go by that home life table and find a group that's just right for you. And we'll see you there this week. Bye-bye.